Welcome to Culture Camp. An attempt to pull society back from the cliff it's lazily shuffling over. On today's episode, Elephant in the Classroom, Sean and Gavin discuss the obtuse musings of John Dewey, educating people not to do bad things, Jean-Paul Freire's idea that education is always political, and the origin of the word peninsula. What we're talking about here, right, about uh, killing your own internal emotions and things like that, this this lead fills back to uh, what we were talking about with education in the C.S. Lewis episode, right? Because you fundamentally altered yourself from something that's uh, that's virtuous and, and capable of um, meaningful action, right? And the, the purpose of traditional education is to make you into somebody who's virtuous and capable of meaningful action, right? Like this is, or one form of it. Right? Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, well, it's the, here's the thing, though, is it's the mistake. It's the mistake of confusing getting rid of desire with mm-hmm. getting rid of the will to pursue that that desire. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the difference between uh, being harmless mm-hmm. and being like in control. Because somebody who's incapable of, it's, I think it's like Jordan, Jordan Peterson says, if you're incapable of performing harm and you don't harm anybody, you're not moral, you're just harmless. Mm-hmm. If you're capable of doing you're harm... You're impotent. You're impotent. If you're capable of doing harm and you choose not to do harm, then you are moral, then you are good. It's kind of like, you can have desires. Mm-hmm. Do you get rid of the desire or do you get rid of the will to act upon those desires mm-hmm. is it does it benefit anybody to be a man of no will walking around whatsoever i think the answer to that is obviously not like you said this can be di- divided into the question of intention and then the uh, question of uh, potency right and so you know some moral calibration is necessary because everybody's going to have some level of potency within the world right or most people are so if you don't teach some sort of true ethics, or you don't teach some sort of true morality, what you're going to end up with is people just attempting to impose their individual wills on the world in a very haphazard fashion, right? A thousand voices c- crying out for a thousand different foods, willing to eat each other to get it. Is this your sneaky segue to talking about John Dewey? Because Possibly. it fits perfectly with his ethos of democracy and his absolute dearth of morality. It's not a dearth of morality. It's that he uh, he makes morality decidedly, quote unquote, pragmatic, or as I guess he would call it, instrumental. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, though, from what you said, it sounds like it, it's meant to be pragmatic and instrumental, but ends up also being ideal, which is very strange. No, 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 no. Okay, so here's the thing about here's what I will say about John Dewey. John Dewey is a prolific writer. I, I already I already mentioned that he wrote forty books. I think somewhere around forty books, and he wrote myriad of articles mm-hmm. and i feel after i read democracy or after i read uh, democracy and education uh, i checked out some of his other works i looked at common faith which is like his uh, his sort of tract on uh how christianity is going to be overrun by secularism mm-hmm. and i read all this stuff by john dewey and i had a very hard time doing it by the way because he's an incredibly bad writer he's an incredibly obtuse writer and i yeah. don't i don't think i'm wrong in saying that there was, I watched a debate with a bunch of English teachers over the merits of Dewey, and one of them said something that's very true. He wrote so much, and over such a long period of time, and all human beings' ideas change over time, you can kind of make Dewey say whatever you want him to say. Yeah. I hold that to be true, even though I've only read a few things by him. 
but he does have some consistencies. So let me first let me first tell you what whenever I whenever you summon John Dewey in the mainstream political discourse, you're talking about mm -hmm. one thing. I'm talking about his overarching philosophy, which I think is is more important. So what happens? John Dewey is he's this mainstream philosopher, mostly from the early twentieth, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. He's a founding father of uh, functional psychology, of pragmatism, or as he would have called it, uh, instrumentalism. Basically, he believes that social thoughts, and especially morals, uh, are social. They cr they're created through so social circumstances. There's no transcendental truth to yeah. morality, right? Everything is about social adaptability. Now, he develops in, I, I, he wrote in 1890-something, and in 18, uh, 1897, My Pedagogic Creed, and he talks about his idea for how education should work. And he lays out four main points. I have them written down here. But if you mention Dewey-eyed education in, in an educational setting, like if you're taking a pedagogy yeah. class, like I went and I took like the University of Ontario TEFL learning, you learn Dewey-eyed Deweyisms. Yeah. Uh, four points. If you look them up on YouTube, you'll get these. He believes students should learn by doing, they should learn through discussion, that their learning should be interactive, and that it should be interdisciplinary. That sounds vague and weird and not very specific. It's not very specific. I think he may have done this intentionally. But it's all, all of his philosophy, of all the things you could make John Dewey say, his philosophy is incredibly well connected. It's incredibly well interlinked. Because it's connected to his functionalism, it's connected to his pragmatism, and it's connected to his moral philosophy. So his big thing is that the purpose of education, let me just read a quote from uh, Christopher Dawson, this uh, Christian English historian, that to Dewey, education is not for the communication of knowledge, but for a shared social experience, so that the child integrates better into a democratic society. Morals are essentially social and pragmatic, and any attempt to subordinate education to transcendent values or dogmas should be resisted. So that, it's, it's funny. That's the you, essence of Dewey. That what you've just said in terms of the the social values seems very foreign to me. But what you said in terms of those four points sounds a lot like what my education was like in it's high school. It's probably what both of our educations were like. I was in a Deweyite program whenever I was in school. Fun fact, so was Chomsky. He talks about it in plenty of interviews. And uh, I was terrible at it. I didn't like it. I, whenever I've had this argument with other people in the education field, they like to bring it up and go like, oh, well, Chomsky went to a Deweyite school. He went to a Deweyite school until he was 12, and then he went to a traditional school. And I think... Uh, him being Chomsky is more a function of him being an intelligent human being than him being an attendee of a Deweyite school. There are plenty of geniuses who went to public schools, and I'm sure there are plenty of morons who went to Deweyite schools. But Deweyisms have been integrated in education at all levels. If you've ever been in a group project, if you've ever had to do discussions or presentations... The teacher teaching you is integrate that that is a very Deweyistic thing. I don't want to say it's anything outside of like pure rote learning, which by the way I find incredibly useful and I prefer. But Dewey, I, uh, Dewey was very into what he called student-centered learning, uh, because this is also linked to his theory of democracy that students should have a democratic participation as to what happens in their learning. They should be interacting with their learning. Uh, this has very little regard for what's being taught. Yeah. Uh, you're going to teach chemistry. Experimental chemistry very differently than you're going to teach history or political science. It's kind of hard to insist that we're going to teach history experientially, and to be quite honest, 
I was in a high school class where we got to build trebuchets. Yes, it was very fun. No, I didn't learn anything, and that's very salient. Mm -hmm. I also want to say, as the producer, I took that same science class in high school. It was awesome. What? I got to yeah, see somebody. Yeah, did you learn anything? Uh, I learned that... Yeah, that's uh, why you're not talking more on the podcast. <laughs> I, le I learned... <laughs> I learned I learned that an inch-thick steel bar can bend when you put 10 pounds of weight in a uh, trebuchet bucket. Brian, you could Google that. I learned that uh, this guy who was a year ahead of me, uh, you know, it elicits a pain response when you fire a tennis ball into his nuts. Like, I mean... True. That, um, that's, you know, I could have learned that other ways, but uh, it did teach me that. But it didn't teach me anything else. Actually, I don't think I was ever in that class. I think I just got to see the results of it. So that's really what you want to see is, is be on the outside looking in on those things. But no, when you, when you, you talk about all of this uh, as regards the, the students being involved in their own education, uh, there's kind of a, a meta problem with this as well that uh, we're, we're talking about students getting to learn what they want to learn and being engaged in their own um, the formation of their own curriculum and, and uh, that sort of thing I think that was one of the four points right is, yeah is, is, it, it puts an incredible amount of faith in the discipline and work ethic of students and anybody who has ever taught or worked with children knows like, if you mm -hmm. have kids, you're going to have this experience. I've had this experience with uh, my nephews, and I've had this experience with my students. Kids will initially not want to do something or learn something, and then once they're forced to engage it for a bit, whether it's watching, you know, uh, this, uh, this movie called Kevy, it's about cats of Istanbul, and five minutes into it, all of a sudden, you know, we have to go or you have to shut it off, and they're all screaming to, like, they want to keep watching it and stuff. Or I've had students come in and say they were reticent or hesitant to take a certain class, but as soon as they started taking the class, they loved it, and they really learned something. There's a part of human nature that needs a sort of reasonable authority to guide them People, yeah, people get stuck on whatever they're doing, and it's difficult to switch them off of it. This is already true with my toddler, right? He's just stuck on what he wants, and if you try to change it, it works. But there, there's, I think there's something even deeper, uh, and and I think that's absolutely true. But I think there's something even uh, sort of more analytical and directly related to this problem that we're sitting here talking about this educational authority. Talk about how you can't have authority in education, right? So there's something intrinsically self-defeating about the attempt to fully democratize classrooms in the sense that that idea has to come from somewhere, that somewhere has some authority, and regardless of how you're learning, that authority is always going to exist. So I've read six or seven criticisms uh, against Dewey. I tried to get a good even spread of criticism against his ideas, and I hope that thus far I've reasonably covered sort of the core of what he believes again this man is a prolific writer he says mm -hmm. a whole lot of things and i don't want to oversimplify him i don't like him i don't like his ideas but he's had a bad experience with his ideas i mean I, well, I mean i've had bad personal experiences with his ideas or at least how modern educators have interpreted his ideas but that's the problem there's a lot of room for interpretation of his ideas one of the things uh that he's big on is I, one of the, the thing that he's big on is democracy. So he says in freedom, or I'm sorry, he says in democracy and education uh, more than once, and he says it in several of his other works, democracy is the supreme ethical ideal. He means that absolutely in the platonic sense. 
democracy is the supreme ethical ideal of humanity. It's the greatest thing that we can strive for. Uh, I have this thing that I've started saying where he sort of sacralizes democracy as much as a secularist like him is capable of sacralizing something. And he does it at the cost of everything else in society. Mm -hmm. I think the major paradox within Dewey's thought, I think there's three major paradoxes, and I'll eventually get to all of them. This paradox here has to do with the fact that he believes that the function of education is the creation of a perfect democratic body, a collective democratic soul. Yeah. And the purpose of education is not to transmit vocational knowledge to students, but to make them basically little social reformers, better participants in a democracy. And the weird thing about it is that it's not uh, implicit and is the only idea that we're working towards here is equality, liberty and equality, which sound really nice, but much like ter uh, ideas like respect or tolerance, they're infinitely elastic. You can sort of stretch them over to mean whatever you want them to mean. And striving for them as values as such doesn't really get you anywhere. Uh, if he did not eschew perennial education so much and he had actually paid attention, because I know he read Plato's Republic, if he had actually paid attention to any of Plato's uh, criticisms of democracy, he would see where the inherent problem of this lies. Because what he believes is you want to create this democracy of perfect citizens, but you also want to issue traditionalism. You don't want to... Uh, uh, so the thing that I said from Christopher Dawson where he says that uh, social mores are basically pragmatic. They're, they're products of society, mm -hmm. and we should revolt against any, uh, any impulse to attach these to transcendental values. I hold you cannot have a functioning democratic society without a citizenry that has some concept of transcendental values that go beyond democracy itself. Uh, democracy itself. That's, it's self-referential, and it's eventually going to fail, and it's something that he never addresses. I think there's something uh, in tension here in his thought when you talk about the, uh, the ideal and the goal of this perfect democracy, but then you go back and talk about the, um, you know, this, this common experience, because you have to ask yourself, what milieu does this common experience arise from, right? Because even if you get something that's like a perfect democracy with equality and everything of that nature, uh, that's not going to be uh, completely self-sufficient. That doesn't define the whole system. So there are going to be other things in the system, right? And if you start from any location in historical time and space and you talk about the, the common experience of people in that time and space, that common experience is going to have a certain content. And so you have to ask yourself, if he's saying that, that this is all going to be rooted in common experience and it's completely pragmatic and everything, what instantiates that common experience, right? Don't you know? It's him. Uh, because one of the big, one of the other things that he's big on mm -hmm. is that, uh, so he is a psychologist, which was uh, primarily what he did. And one of, his, one, I think one of his more famous quotes, what he says about school is that schools are the tools of the creation of the new democratic society and psychology is the scientific method by which it will be created. For him, mm -hmm. the instantiation of this new morality comes out of science, which is yeah. literally what he believes. It's, I, it's very sort of related to the enlightenment, the vague enlightenment ideal of, of reason as a, as a transcendent moral ideal. Yeah, so, but he's tried to do away with the transcendence by talking about pragmatism. Yeah. Right? 
you know, for th these things are in tension. Now we have a triangle of tensions, right? Because we have this democratic ideal. We have the place where we're going to start when we're moving to that democratic ideal. And now we have something, a science psychology that is going to move us toward it. So we've just introduced the historical situation that people are in, right, is, is where they begin. We have this ideal, which is the place that they're trying to move to. And it sounds very, we're moving toward democracy. We're trying to formulate it out of people's common experience. But now we have something, you know, psychology. We have science that's authoritative, which is fundamentally in tension with what people, uh, at, you know, sharing a common, common experience would want, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that in any time when you're, when you're talking about trying to implement a, a progressive education system that's based on the ideas that you just articulated, what you end up doing is delivering to the students if, if they're guiding their own uh, education, you are just going to have them recapitulating their interests in the historical situation that they're in. Right or whatever they personally are interested in, whether it has a commonality or not, and so you're going. And if you want to guide them toward any sort of ideal, you're just going to end up reintroducing some sort of authority in order to try to guide them there. It's just not going to be the traditional authority that that has been invested in education in the past, right? Well, so what you get, and I'll tell you what I think you get out of of out of a Deweyite thinking in education, is you get institutionalized failure. And mm -hmm. by the way, I'm not one of these people because I've read a couple. Of, there was a great criticism that I read, or I partially read of Dewey, and it was by uh, Henry T. Edmondson. He wrote it back in 2006. I think it's called John Dewey and the Failure of, of, and Ameri uh, and the Failure of American Education. But he is a conservative. He attacks it from a very conservative point of view, and he says that uh, Deweyite thinking brings us inst into institutionalized failure, because eventually you do get anarchy, because it becomes obvious that kids guiding their own education aren't interested in learning things that will actually prepare them for the real world. Mm -hmm. And so therefore a tyrannical system must sort of clamp down, which kind of works by the way with plate with, uh, with the transition, uh, in Plato's five regimes from the tyrant, from the d democratic man to the tyrannical man. What we have today, I actually think our education system in America I, I, I thought about it and I thought about it, and this still feels like a right description. We got the worst of both worlds. We get, what, through our sort of uh, half-assed dedication to Deweyite ideals and the weird bureaucratic rigidity with which our system works, we've gotten an education system that's nothing more than, than uh, a pastiche of all the worst ideas in educational theory. Because mm -hmm. what happens is from the very top, on like the federal and government level, from the like the highest reaches of education, you have standardization, mm -hmm. Common Core tests because they're metrics, and and bureaucracies like metrics because they like it whenever you can uh, quantify things that people are doing, even if these aren't inherently quantifiable things. Yeah, they're so, formal systems, so they like formal measures. Yeah, so on. So from top down, you have this very very standardized pressure. And I'll complain if I just got done reading Technological Society by Jacques Ellul. I'll complain about standardization all day. I'm not a big fan. But on the other end, from the bottom up, teachers that go into uh, middle school and high school education are all getting Deweyite education. Mm 
-hmm. And what you're getting is you're getting a system which judges students against a standard. And their education of that standard is this weird mix of having to teach to the test, because that's a practical concern, and then trying to do it through all these weird Deweyite methods, which are predicated on the idea that you're not going to be teaching to a test. So you do a lot of, like, students, well, like, we're, we're going to do some student self-guided learning until we have to stop doing that so we can teach the test. We're going to do this sort of, like, ineffectual group work so students may not learn a lot, but uh, they'll feel like they had more of a command over their education. What you end up getting is institutionalized failure. You get a population of students who aren't confident because they're going to fail that standardized test or they're going to score very low, and they didn't actually learn anything because they weren't forced to learn anything. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I do believe, by the way, so whenever we talked about that... Well, what, what, I, what I want to say about that is that, you know, the question that the analysis a minute ago raised was like, if the learning is self-guided, then it's just coming from whatever milieu the people are in, right? But then you have this authority, and in the Dewey's case, the authority would be psychology, but if you look at the psychology of Dewey's time, I think large portions of it are what we would consider to be pseudo pseudoscience these days, probably, right? I mean, like, there, there's going to be a b huge bundle of intellectual kitsch uh, in whatever you try to uh, impose authoritatively just because a lot of what passes in any... I mean, it was behaviorism. It was psycho yeah. Psychology was seen as, by Dewey explicitly, he said it as a tool of social control. Yeah. So this is something that, that modern psychology, you know, isn't fully engaged with anymore and that most people would reject, and yet this is what Dewey was putting in as the operating system uh, of, of this transition from the current state to this ideal democratic state. And it's interesting to watch something like that happen because you have a situation where you're trying to eschew authority, but you end up bringing authority back in, you know, just by the necessaries of the situation. And that authority, because you aren't dealing with, you know, traditions that have stood the test of time or anything like that, you end up pulling in uh, the, the intellectual kitsch of your day. And so, like, if we look at Common Core and different things like that that are being, being imposed from the top that you're talking about, right, they're being approached with Deweyite methods, but those are also, uh, you know, the, the common standards or whatever the, the uh, intellectual preferences of the moment are, right? Yeah. To be fair, his interpretation of education, how it should work, is that it should be adaptive to the current moment anyway. Right. There's nothing perennial about his thinking. There's nothing eternal. There's nothing that extends beyond the now because that's what pragmatism is. Everything is adaptive. Everything sort of molds to the now and that's how we should think and that's how we should educate our kids. Mm -hmm. The weird paradoxes that you get in Deweyite thinking are things like, so his highest deal is democracy and yet he goes around and he calls uh, obedience a negative virtue. Now, intuitively, if you just, if you're only thinking about it in a cursory sort of fashion, you're just like, yeah, obedience is a negative virtue. And we're inundated that uh, in our culture, right? Like one mm -hmm. of the most famous uh, images uh, you'll see on a college dorm room is from that John Carpenter movie, uh, They Live, from I think like, what, 1990, 1991, mm -hmm. where it's, you know, the guy puts on the glasses and everything says obey, consume. Mm -hmm. And we've developed this stigma against against the words. I even say the words authority and obedience. Mm -hmm. And even whenever I hear those words or I read those words, I can feel myself buying into the negative stigma behind them. Mm -hmm. But there's a... And by the way, this isn't an argument for more authoritarian forms of thinking. There's just a natural, non-negligible -neg part of human life that requires deference to 
hopefully Some good faith, authority. fair authorities, especially in a democracy. Because in a democracy, once a decision is made, other people should obey it. If other people are not, which I mean, that's kind of like democratic centralism, but yeah, not, not exactly. Well, but it, whenever, does, he, does he try to solve this by saying that uh, obedience won't be necessary simply because we'll have uh, a commonality it, of so perception? Well, here's the thing: is that this is this is uh, the go around he gets by naming democracy. He's like, oh no, 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 you don't get it. Democracy isn't this broad political system. It's a per- personal ethos. If we all just adopt this ethos, then it'll work out. Which is as fantastical as any other sort of piece, uh, any sort of thinking, but that's the whole idea, right? If, if, the, if we make the object of schools to inculcate people with this democratic ethos, ostensibly, ideally, more and more of the population will have access to this individual ethos, and then we can, we can have the perfect world. Because you have to keep in mind, well, when, he, he does believe in the perfective politics of the day. When, when you say something like that, it's interesting because it just sounds like every other claim that if we could just recondition society enough, it would it would be utopian and we don't have to deal with all of these hey practical guys, if, social if problems. Hey, guys, if we weren't there would be no murder. <laughs> if only we could educate everyone not to do bad things, people wouldn't do bad things. But but no, but that actually makes it sound more, more practical than it is, right? Because there's a certain certain sense in which, you know... Every time you make any sort of incremental change in a society or incremental improvement, uh, you are going to see certain failures of it, and it's not going to alleviate every single thing in society. If you make your theories abstract enough, then you can you can diagnose problems and attempt to uh, eliminate them in, in this abstracted world uh, with you know solutions that are never practically going to work. That's what that sounds like to me, is saying, well, in the state of ideal democracy, we will have educated everybody not to, to do all these things, so we won't need obedience from everybody. And it's, I don't see any practical manifestation of that that doesn't imply a gigantic amount of control over the entirety of society. Well, and that's the problem, is that he's very much tied to his philosophy. Is, uh, you could, I, it's the delocalization of education, and really mm. of uh, humanity in general. What I mean by that is, at the end of the day, he is a liberal. And I mean that he is a classical liberal, and yeah. in that sense, he believe he views institutions like the family and like the church as obstacles to the actualization of the individual, and therefore, uh, ultimately, net moral bad. So he they're is obs- a me- methodological things- individualist. You know what? I'm not even going to pretend like I know the specific meaning of that term, but I can guess it by it. It's the first time I've heard that in that context. But he's an asshole, so there's that. No, he very much believes in, like, cultural smoothing mm-hmm. as an agent to achieve this perfect democratic society, which goes into... But the, the individual is the fundamental unit of analysis in his... I mean, he's a psychologist, I mean, so it's, it and he, Well, he buys into the the atomistic psychology of the day, which, okay. uh, which is that yeah. we're all individuals. Now, that does not mean that he's not primar- primarily motivated by communal thinking. It, it's, it's individuals acting as a part of the community. Mm-hmm. This is nowhere better on display than the weird melting pot plays of his day. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I think I'm familiar with these. I remember reading a biography of Teddy Roosevelt where they, he, he witnessed one of these. Oh, so back in the early 20th century, they would, uh, there, were these, there were these big progressive uh, plays and parades that were on where you would have immigrants from like Ireland and Germany and France and they would wear their cultural dress and they would put on this big parade and they would dance and, and behind them at the very end there's Uncle Sam on stilts. And he would go and he would usher them all to crawl into this giant 
pot and they would come out on the other side wearing like a bowler hat and a suit and all dressed the same and the idea mm -hmm. of dewey and psychology that psychology is a tool for cultural smoothing you because you remember okay, the, this in, is different than what i thought it was that's yeah, really interesting in the day that dewey is writing you are getting incredible amounts of mass migration into america's east coast cities from places like ireland and germany and there's this big concern as to how to integrate these people into a new american society and the psychological approach with the of the day was that psychology is a tool where we can overcome these obstacles of of now, is uh, he ethnic loyalty. Yeah. Now, is he explicitly calling it cultural smoothing? No. Because because that's not because the conception of this sort of melting pot idea that I've always seen is that it it creates something new in the United States that is the equal of the things that came before it, right, or even superior to them, but not that it smooths them out in a way that so that so that characteristics are eliminated entirely, right? You're you're giving up one ethnicity for another ethnicity, more or well, less. Yeah, well, right? if you keep in if you keep any vestige of identity from your quote-unquote previous life from your pre-democratic life it's at most meretricious right it's it's a it's a you know what are your cultural forms or dance or maybe we say this word like this in german but meaningfully philosophically personally you are now an american mm -hmm. you're a participant in this perfect democracy and psychology is the technology which has been the psychology as it operates the school system right yeah so as you become an immigrant and your children go through Dewey's education system, they become Americans on their own. We've overcome the obstacles of ethnic and religious loyalty. And this is the time at which uh, ethnic enclaves all across the United States are being actively suppressed by the United States government. So I guess the question becomes, if you have something like that operating on a bunch of immigrants where you need to get their cultures dissolved and brought in line with a mainstream culture, right? that's one thing. But then if that's turned on the culture, that cultural milieu you're in itself, that's quite the different thing, isn't it? I guess well, that's where I'm trying the, to get. This a, I, think, I think I know where you're going with this, and I think I like where you're going with this. Well, is that you've set up a... You, if, if you do that, then you have... Again, it's this sort of thing where this is introduced as being democratic and egalitarian, but it ends up becoming a system of social control, because we started out. It's almost like a democratic Stalinism. I, that's such a weird term. It feels very natural to what's being described here. I mean, it really is. It, it really is the top-down oppression of the majority to this new weird cult ideal. Well, it gets deployed against. It was meant to be. It was created to be deployed against other cultures as people moved to the United States, and instead, it gets deployed at American culture itself. No, but, but what I'm what I'm trying to say with this is that if you talk about it as cultural smoothing and that sort of thing, is that it's meant to break the chain of transmission of the traditional cultures of these other groups uh, in the United States context, so that they will melt into being modern Americans, right? Because it has this ideal modernity in it, right? This ideal democratic state. Uh, but then, if you it, it works to do that, but the other thing that it manages to do is it manages to sever the transmission of of any sort of traditional American values, right? Because again, it's pragmatic and based on because right, uh, it eschews values as such, right? So it can do it can do the thing that you're talking about by melting all of these people into Americans, but it can but it can also do this thing where it takes it the prior generation of America or a new generation of Americans 
and melts them into something that isn't like the prior generation. You can say what what makes being human human, at least partially, is your particularity. And by removing the particularity, in essence, you remove a part of the humanity. Yeah, well, or you engage in a form of creating hyper-particularity, right? Because now it's not just a culture uh, or a tradition that's being transmitted in one country over time instead it's uh this generation has a culture and the next generation has a culture and the next generation has a culture uh because you aren't rooting it in anything traditional. Uh, well, and, and we start and we start articulating ourselves not in terms of culture but in terms of generation yeah or and, and <laughs> yeah because because what what we were what we started out talking about was this uh uh the fact that if you don't have this transmission of, of any sort of traditional beliefs or these values that are pre-existent or any sort of transcendent order, then what you get comes from the, the shared experience of the people living in a specific point in time, right? And that's like the explicit goal here. So what that does is kind of end up overriding the, the transmission of culture through the schools that's happened in the past. You're taking kids out of their families right, by putting them in the schools, and then you're not transmitting the the values that are pre-extant in the culture to them. Instead, you're putting them in a melting pot to have them be have the um, ethics of the day. Right. This leaves American uh, melting potism, but that just reminds me of I was talking to a French kid one time in London, and he said that he felt, as a millennial, culturally closer to millennials in London or in New York City than he did to, like, the boomers of his own country. Mm-hmm. And that's very interesting to me in light of what we're talking about. Well, I'd imagine that this is an effect that, if it exists, would be intensified by the Internet, right? Because the Internet, internet ability to use the Internet and to create the culture on the Internet, I mean, you treat that culture as an emergent property. There's a huge disjunction between older and younger people and their ability to use it, and therefore a huge disjunction in the culture, Right. Like, that's why you see boomer memes and things like that. They don't make any sense. They're illegible or they're cringe to younger people, right? You have entire vocabularies that are like that. So one of the things that's going to, that we can see that comes out of this is when you're, when you're trying to, to, to do this kind of education is that when you update things, you end up getting a big injection of intellectual kitsch, but you also get a big injection of just whatever happens to be floating around in the environment during the day, which in our milieu is going to be... Um, just a whole bunch of commercialized neoliberal crap. So I think, Gavin, I had fun reading the obtuse musings of John Dewey. Spoiler alert, I did not actually have fun doing that. And I have laid out to you my love letter to John Dewey and everything that I think about his political thought and his philosophical thought and how it's uh, deprived future generations of transcendent moral value through education. And I think... I want to say tangentially, but I think ultimately very much spiritually related, is Paulo Freire. Yes. And I think you read Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which I only had light contact with in grad school, and I'm excited to learn about it now, because I feel like it contains so many similar nuggets of wisdom that I got from Dewey. So Pedagogy of the Oppressed is basically a work of Marxist psychoanalysis, from 1968 that's also a form of educational theory uh it's implicitly leninist meaning that it's meant to be used in a revolutionary context and that should instantly turn most people off from it because most people aren't interested in leninist revolution um but i think that it has kind of a a fundamental structural problem that's very similar to the problem in dewey because 
So Dewey has this uh, transcendent moral order that he doesn't believe in and this that's upheld by traditional education. Uh, Frere believes that traditional education um, basically serves the interests of the oppressors. His entire book is structured around there being oppressors and oppressed and these being two classes of people in society that are analytically uh, in opposition, materially in opposition to one another. And so, just as Dewey doesn't like this idea of just the transmission of knowledge, Frere doesn't like the idea of this banking model of education, is what he calls it, where you're just depositing things in students' minds, and so their prescription in both cases is to have education that's responsi responsive to the needs of the people uh, that are being educated. And uh, the, the ideal here is education that's more or less guided by the people who are being educated. And I think that's, that's ex extant in both Dewey and in Frere. Uh, but the problem that comes in is that you always have teachers who are, have some sort of authority and some sort of agenda of their own who are coming in and trying to get those students someplace. And in Dewey's case, we, we've just talked about the democratic ideal he has and how the psychologists and educators that he wants to put out are going to get us toward that democratic ideal. Now, I think he thinks that his methodology is going to get us there too, but it would be a pipe dream to say that, that people are not going to also be engaged in teaching students and have some sort of authority that gets them there. Well, and his methodology is just vague and bad, and that's well, one of the biggest criticisms against him is that yeah, but even but even if he had a methodology that was very specific, you'd still have the problem of, of it being implemented by authority figures. Right. And in Frere's case, uh, his idea is that the educator is going to end up being, uh, you know, become a teacher-student just as the students become student-teachers. They're going to be on the same level in different things. But what, what contradicts this to some degree is that Frere has a very well-articulated idea of where he thinks that uh, these people need to end up, which is as part of a Leninist revolutionary system. And he's very explicit about this. He mentions the revolution multiple times, and it's, it's very clear that this is uh, what's going on. Uh, it's interesting, his, his example, his concrete example of when you, you might have difficulty doing this or, or uh, something that might lead you into error is he says that if the people just want wage increases, you can't, as a revolutionary leader, go beyond the people uh, and you can't just be satisfied with the people just wanting wage increases because you need to move them on to seizing the means of production. He explicitly says this. Or he well, the way he phrases it is to, is to put the, the phrase about seizing the means of production in the mouths of, of like the, a conference of bishops or something of that nature. But his, his deal is, is that you basically have to then convince everybody that they need to seize the means of production because you can't go beyond them in the revolution to seize the means of production without the people wanting it. Uh, and you can't just be contented with what the people want. So it's very clearly got uh, something in mind. And so that's a little bit more formed than what Dewey has in mind, which is this perfect democratic system that's a little more abstract and rooted more, e even more in what the people want. But what you see is that uh, ultimately, there's going to be a source of authority in the educational system moving people toward whichever goal you have. So it's never going to be the ideal that they're articulating where it comes directly from the people. I find it very interesting that uh, inadvertently we're looking at two opposite ends of the spectrum of leftism. One of which is Dewey, which is the much closer to center. If look, if we're going to make ourselves slave to geometry and right. insist on a left-right spectrum, then I would say Dewey is very much closer 
to the center in that he has this ultimate democratic ideal. Dewey doesn't talk a lot about, he doesn't talk at all about revolution. Yes. And then, and then on the very, very far left on the Leninist end, which I mean, I don't know, I guess if you're Noam Chomsky, you would insist Leninism is a rightist offshoot of Marxism. Marxism but, but, but it's still, he's on this other leftist end. Like they're both, uh, they're both what we would call leftists, but they have very different goals. Yes. They have very, re- they have very related means though. Yes. Well, they're both trying to move toward a, a system where people rather than some authoritative individual have the power and are able to self-actualize. In Dewey's case, this is as a component of their participation in democracy and arising from their shared experience, which he doesn't seem to define very precisely. For Frere, it's of course going to arise specifically from their class experience, since he is a very has a very Marxist-inflected analysis, right? And so you have this. Um, I mean, in, in either system, yeah. the people are merely a pretense. Well, in, in I, I think I, I would say that both of these people are very honest in what they in wanting the people to have power but then when the the or or wanting the people to be liberated but then the next step is that they seem to have very strong ideas about what liberation looks like and the, that concept of liberation is not what most people want and it's very strange to call it liberation when it is that sort of thing. Well, it's I would say it's like liberation is an acquired taste. Basically, yeah, you have to be educated to your liberation. Uh, and they, I'm sure they both have accounts of why that is, but it, what it sums up to is a situation where it's impossible not to have someone from the, the uh, class that they belong to or the group of people that they belong to educating people and drawing them toward the beliefs of that class, which is literally the same thing that all of the other educators think that they're doing, except that they have some sort of either traditional or transcendent value behind what they're doing. So my point is, is that you can try to move toward this, this education that is uh, formulated according to the needs of the student or the needs of the individuals who are being educated and their problems and different things like that. But uh, what you're ultimately going to, to end up doing is never fully surrendering to that because you yourself are an agent and because you have authority, you're going to end up using that authority or the power you have as the teacher in order to draw them around. And... You know, there's this interesting thing in Frere where he, he attacks the idea that education can ever be neutral to say that education is always political. And it's interesting to see how people who believe that, who are Frereans, and there, there are some interviews in, at the end of the, the version of the book that I read where they discuss the, this idea that, it can, that education can never be politically neutral. But once you introduce something like that, then it becomes uh, um, a pretext or it becomes a license, maybe not a pretext so much as a license, to express your politics in your teaching. But again, this kind of contradicts the idea that you're supposed to be working from the problems of the people themselves. And actually, maybe I'm misinterpreting it when he says that he wants people to work from the problems of the people themselves. Because in a certain sense, he's talking about getting the people to problematize their existence right, and the regime that they're in. So for him, it may be more of a, a an idea that that you are revealing to them these problems so that they can perceive them and work on them in their specific context rather than actually formulating the problems themselves because he talks about people being extremely passive in the face of these things. 
but that complicates this entire narrative about this going from being a banking model to being a, a model of education uh, where educators are not simply making deposits because in that case that is the person who's teaching making the deposits. So I think the, the core th critique that I have of so much of this is simply the fact that it's unclear whether it can actually be accomplished in the, in the context of this uh, model, of any model of teaching where someone is teaching another person. And if it can't be accomplished, then all it, all it allows, uh, all it gives is a pretext for imposing your politics and opinions on other people and pretending like you weren't doing that. Right? There's this element of potential self-deception in this if you believe that you're doing what's possible in this work even though it is impossible and then uh, you are no longer on guard against the idea that you're inculcating something outside of the people into them. I think my biggest criticism of both of these systems of thought of now, now listening to you talk about Freira and what I've read about Dewey, I think my biggest issue with it is because both of them dislike what I'll call traditional education. I like traditional mm -hmm. education. Now, that can still be a broad term. Specifically, I would call myself an educational perennialist. That means I like dudes like Robert Hutchinson, this guy who proposed uh, a large number of books that are that say this is a part of the Western canon, and if you want to be a well-rounded student in Western civilization, this is what you should read. You know, it has everything from Aristotle to Aeschylus yes. to Karl Marx's capital. Uh, well, in the West is not the only thing that has lists of books like that, is it? No, exactly. Right. Now, here's the thing is, I like that. Uh, yeah. I try to emulate my adult life. I, I, try to, I try to establish in my own life what wasn't given to me through the school system, which is a, yeah. con which is a conscious decision I, I had to make myself because that decision was not. Absolutely. The school didn't make that for me. My criticism of it, what Dewey and Freire both attempt to do is that this is my, my idea for how knowledge works. Yes. You go and you engage, and specifically I'm talking about things like language and humanities, like history and political science. You go and you engage in rote learning. You learn the fundamentals through rote learning, which is necessary. It's indispensable. If you take a modern education course today, and I've taken three of them. Uh, yes. The, I, I think the biggest offender was the, the TEFL course through University of Ontario. All they do is whinge about the horrors of rote learning. Rote learning, especially in language learning, and I'm a lifelong language learner. Language learning is what it's, it's yes. primarily what I do. I love learning languages. If you don't have the rote grammar and vocabulary education, you're not getting anywhere. You can't purely, now you have to do dynamic learning on top of rote learning to learn a language. Yes. You need both. I'm not trying to be unreasonable here. But what happens is that, especially in the beginning, and especially for children, the place of the fundamentals is the place of rote learning. And then the place for play is in your own time and in more advanced education later once you have those fundamentals what Freire and Dewey attempt to do is they attempt to they they attempt to formalize the space for intellectual play yes. so that they might impose their own ideals whether it be a, a weird absolute ideal of democracy or communism in Freire's case they want to guide that space for human intellectual development towards their ends instead of recognizing that a very necessary part of education happens outside the classroom and not everything within the classroom. Like it's, it's uh, I want to say it's almost like mandatory fun. It's highly formalized play. Yes. And, and that's not how they dress it up. They dress it up as quite the opposite. They say they're going to get rid of all of the formalization and the rote learning. And then once they've gotten rid of the formalization part of it, then they end up reintroducing formalization into the, 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 
replacement for formalization that they have in this sort of uh, self-actualizing, self-guided learning. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that plays in exactly to what I was talking about because the reason that that happens is that anybody who's attempting to teach somebody else believes that they have something that needs to be taught, right? And it's impossible to escape that. You might be able to ameliorate that by exposing the person who's being taught to a lot of different influences and trying to make them capable of guiding their own learning, make them capable of learning their own things. But if you never recognize um, that, if you have no, no recognition that, that one person in this relationship has authority intrinsically uh, and has motivations of their own, then you're never going to be able to get there. And that's one of the things that these, these ideal systems attempt to do is get rid of that truth. And I think that there would some people be some people who would come back on, on, on this side and say that, that Frere is kind of analyzing, especially in the second chapter of his book, a number of aspects of the relationship that I'm describing. But I don't think, I think that he tries to solve it completely rather than letting it exist in tension and thinking of ways to ameliorate it. And again, I think that that allows you to move to a situation where you um, think that you're not doing this to people when you very, very clearly are. And I think that what you have to have, if you're going to grapple with that honestly, is you have to have a theory of why the things that are being taught are being taught. Are they true? Are they things that people have regarded as being important in the past in different contexts? Like the lots of canonical works, right, uh, in, in various traditions have survived for thousands of years in different social contexts for specifically that reason, right? or you have something that has filtered them out. Like in, if you're looking at, at works of Western philosophy, the ones that are held out as being the best are, uh, exist because they were hand copied by individuals multiple times over several thousand years. Uh, and uh, you know, most, most of the literature of Greece and Rome is completely lost and only the best things, have, and, and some things that survive randomly, but mostly just things that are of high quality managed to survive. But my point in saying that about, you know, those, those are some concrete examples of, of how you can select the things that are going to end up being taught is that you can never deny that there are certain things being taught by the authorities that reflect the, that, that if you don't acknowledge why they're being taught and self-consciously uh, understand why you are teaching them, then you just end up teaching the preferences of whoever the teacher is in their intrinsic position of authority. That's, uh, that just reminds me of the... Uh it's like a Savoy Zizek quip, a Zizek quip of uh, the postmodern boss. Is there mm -hmm. anything worse than the postmodern boss? Which is we're kind of almost like the postmodern teacher, where uh, the old traditional boss or teacher is like, "I'm the authority. You're going to learn this, and then you're going to take this test, and you're going to do this, and you're going to like it." Mm -hmm. uh, or, well, we're more authoritarian, rather. Like, I don't care whether or not you like it, but you're going to do it. But then you have like the weird postmodern teacher who's still an authority figure. Mm -hmm. who still has all the power vested in a teacher or a boss, but comes in and goes, oh, hey, buddy, how's it going? How's your wife? I hope you're doing well. Hey, are you going to go do the thing? And there's the, there's this sort of idea that it, 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 by denying the existence of that power structure, that's somehow making things better. Whenever I would argue uh, the, the postmodern boss or teacher annoys me infinitely. Yeah, and again, the thing is, is that if you internalize one of these ideologies and you, you're trying to practice it out. Now, I'm not saying that you won't be able to practice it out to some degree, but if you if you internalize it completely, then you're going to end up. You 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 may be the postmodern boss, and you may believe your own thing. Right? You may believe that you're just asking people. Yeah. No, but, you may believe you're actually friends with your employees. Yeah. 
but and in any institutionalized setting, that's never going to exist. And it almost seems like some of the uh, people who follow Frarian pedagogy, and I, I should note that when Frere was doing this, Frere is uh, teaching people who are adult students in outreach programs. So it is a very different institutional setting from like a conventional school. But the idea that you're going to be able to do this completely in a university setting or in a, especially like a younger school setting is I think pretty uh, preposterous. Um, but the, um, be, beca again, because of the intensification of the, the power imbalance and the authority that the, the teacher has in, in those contexts, you do see people acknowledge that in some institutional, con in these, these interviews that go on, on the end of this book, that in certain institutional contexts, it is impossible to have Frarian pedagogy and that it might only exist like in activist groups, for example, where I'm, I think the stakes are different, exit is easier. Those aren't the reasons they give. They, they think that it's impossible in universities because of the way in which the curriculum's been fully neoliberalized, which I wouldn't say that they don't have a point, but I think that they're not getting to the, the center of the problem there. I mean, they probably disagree for different reasons. I do find that funny, the relationship between whenever you're taking a pedagogy course, I'm just going to keep going after University of Ontario on this one. Or, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, University of Toronto. Uh, University of Toronto has a, a teaching English as a second language course. Yeah. And it is, it is, if you ever pay, like I did, the... Uh, exorbitant amount of money it takes to get certified to teach English as a second language, you are going to be exposed to a whole bunch of the weird ideology we're talking about here. And there's nothing funnier than hearing all these ministrations about, uh, oh, we should sort of do away with our reliance on metrics and wasn't Frere and wasn't Dewey great. Also, if you don't finish this multiple choice exam, you don't pass. You don't, you don't pass the class. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, I would say that, that one of the things that we see in current society is that society is over-bureaucratized and there's too much testing and different things like that. And if, like you, I believe you, you mentioned something earlier about... Oh, we need metrics so we can, I don't know, dunk on other countries with, with a, some IQ test metric? I, I don't, don't know. Me metrics are necessary to make human action legible to other humans on an impersonal level. So, of course, they're necessary for bureaucracies and things of that nature. So metrics are something that come up with, with scale. Statistics, too. Statistics are literally what the state computes, right? Statistics. And uh, they're to make, make what's happening in the country legible to the state. And, Wait, uh, is, that act is that actually the etymology of the word? I've been told that that's true. Oh, my God, I learned something today. That's <laughs> Even if it's not true, it feels true. Um, this is like when I learned most that most important, art came right? from artifice. That's incredible. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Peninsula comes from the Latin words pine. Oh. <laughs> the Latin words pine and insula, so it's almost an island. Pine means. That's almost. they called it. What do we call this? Uh, almost sort, an island. Sort of island. Pine insula. Yeah. Um, but but no. So the, I think there are there are Frarians who would who would say that the reason that it the, that that shows up that you have people praising Frarian pedagogy. And then you have a whole bunch of metrics that are very contrary to the idea of Frarian pedagogy is that uh, people are only reading part of Frere, right? I said earlier that it's a revolutionary Leninist text uh, or a revolutionary text that is very uh, influenced by Lenin and assumes, assumes a, a party like that. Well, the people like to take one chapter or two chapters out of it that talk about uh, the sort of banking model of education versus this problem-solving model of education. 
I like to take that out of context and adapt it to what they're doing while ignoring all the revolutionary socialist part. And uh, you can easily see how if you were in the modern context and you wanted to use those things, you would take those things, put them in, a, put them into whatever you're doing, and it would eschew all of the revolutionary part and it would become bureaucratized and co-opted by the system. Which, by the way, so question about Frere, uh, Frere himself. Whenever he goes around saying... Leninism. So is the implication that... It well, will he be doesn't the, explicitly it, say Leninism. He says revolutionary party. Okay, so he's never talking about a vanguard educating Well, so people. he never specifically describes it as a vanguard. So this is another interesting tension in the pedagogy of the oppressed that I found fairly interesting, is that he starts out by... For the, for the listeners out but there, by the way, just to let you know, I bring that up because the, the, the idiosyncrasy of... Leninism, Leninism is that it believes that there needs to be a vanguard of educated people, not necessarily elites, yeah. who guide the rest of the peasant population to communism. That's, yeah. that's Leninism. Or the proletariat originally, the proletariat. but then Lenin has to do it through the, the peasant society of Russia, and so he theorizes a an, an proletarian vanguard or an intellectual vanguard that will lead all of that. Yeah, so Freire is talking about a revolutionary party, and he obviously needs that. Obviously, believes that there's going to need to be um, uh, a vanguard for the party, and he's really addressing the vanguard who's trying to educate the peasants or proletariat. Like it's pretty clear. Are you saying like that's his audience? I'm saying that's the audience for this work. Okay. Yeah. No. Um, what's interesting about this in the book is that he sets up a binary at the beginning between the oppressor and the oppressed, right? Which would, could very easily map onto the, um, owners of cap the bourgeoisie, the owners of capital, and then the working class though. And he links it back to that sum, but he never puts it in those ex like close explicitly Marxist terms that I remember. So working from that abstraction, the oppressor and the oppressed, he basically admits that he, he's, he's, gives a bunch of characteristics of the oppressors and a bunch of characteristics of the oppressed, such as the oppressors being, you know, objectivizing, objectifying and dehumanizing the oppressed and different things like that, and gives characteristics of, this, of the, the psychology and kind of the cultural product of each of these groups. Uh, but he, and, and it's interesting because he speaks of it in very absolute terms as if the, there are only certain things that can emanate from the oppressed and only certain things that can emanate from the oppressor, such as the oppressors being the only one, or the oppressed, excuse me, being the only ones who can end oppression within the society. But he then also very clearly states that people have to come from the oppressors to the oppressed, basically this vanguard, in order to organize and educate them. And so he's, he's often talk, clearly addressing people he thinks come from the uh, high upper classes, right, the, the oppressor classes uh, who will be coming into uh, becoming the allies of the oppressed. I'm or, starting to see how beautifully this maps on to modern uh, gender and race politics. Oh, yes. No. Uh, so it's interesting because one of the things that he says is that uh, when you are an oppressor and you start to lose oppressive power, it feels like you are being oppressed even though you aren't. Which yeah, is I've something seen, that you literally Facebook a yes. times. I, when when it, I ran across that, I don't know if he's repeating something else, maybe from from somebody earlier. Like I can see Gramsci saying that or something like that. But I definitely was just like, oh my gosh, she literally says this thing that maps perfectly onto onto present politics. Um, you know, so so it is it is v very vanguardism. And I'll say this, like 
I think that if you're going to have a Leninist vanguard party that's going to try to take over uh, society, that uh, using Frera rather than just going straight for being the vanguard and taking control of stuff is probably more effective and humane. I mean, because you, it does emphasize listening to what the people actually want, except that it, and, and he's very against trying to just fully propagandize them and everything, even though he is trying to persuade them. And like I said earlier, he sees it as a problem if you don't go along with the vanguardism to try and, and uh, seize the means of production. But he doesn't, and then he says that you should be using uh, persuasion or, or dialectics education to try and bring people over to the side of doing that. But he's not very clear on exactly how that's supposed to work if the people are like, you know, no, we have our, um, we have our higher wages now and we're contented with that. I mean, one reason that's important, right, is like, if you've ever heard the phrase American exceptionalism, the original f formulation of American exceptionalism comes from, I, I think it was the economist Werner Sombart uh, talking about why there was no proletarian socialist movement in the United States like there was in European countries. And Sombart said something on this, like, you know, the revolution founders on... Uh, potatoes and boiled beef or something like that and basically admitted that that American workers were getting high enough wages that they didn't want to revolt so this is a serious problem for somebody like Farah who is is a Leninist but or I, I should say I you know seems to have a Leninist conception of the party I don't know if he's a pure and unadulterated Leninist or, or that I can put that appellation on him hmm. I guess from the two works we've described John Dewey and Paulo Freire. Yeah, where are we now? I think we're on the part... I think we're on the public service announcement at the end of the G.I. Joe cartoon <laughs> where we're like, hey, kids, don't play with electrical lines. Uh, don't use a toilet on a construction site. <laughs> that must have been one of them. But I think we're supposed to pull some... I think we're supposed to say what we learned today. What did you learn today, Gavin? And what would you... How would you... How has all this come into modernity? And what would you suggest is a solution or do you like some of this stuff well even later modernity well i you know i really like the idea of people being fully self-actualized learners who can interpret their own reality it's just that when you look at these ideologies in the exact way that they're expressed uh i i am afraid that they don't take a sober look at the empirical reality of human cognition and human society and attempt to build upon that to, to make people self-actualizing because they both have their intrinsic agenda. Now, a Frarian would tell me, well, everybody has their agenda. This is a fundamentally intrinsically political process. But I don't think that they engage meaningfully with the fact that it is a that these things are political. I want to say that again because I want to make it absolutely clear what I'm saying, that you finish reading Paulo Freire and this understanding that education is intrinsically political, and if you accept that and go back and read Freire in that context, what it becomes apparent is that you're listening to a dude who is trying to impose his politics by converting everybody to becoming part of revolutionary socialism. And when you get to that point, then you have to ask yourself the same way that you have to ask yourself about Dewey, what, where is this person trying to lead us, uh, if the methodology is meant to lead you in that direction, is the methodology tainted by the politics of the people who have have created the methodology, and are there methodologies that get outside of that question and do form humans in a, 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 a way where they can grapple with the political nature of society and, and the political nature of human existence 
in a way that allows them to perceive things as there are they are so you say that uh Freira and Dewey don't sufficiently tackle the empirical reality, which is one of, I guess, the benefits of high theory is that, uh, in a way, uh, we sort of all tacitly accept that theory is allowed to to freely orbit relatively above and detached from. Yeah, and that, that bothers reality. me. You know that bothers I'd, me. I know it bothers <laughs> you. That's why I said it. The other thing about it, so they they treat the empirical data badly. I also think that they're very glib uh, and dismissive overly so obviously of traditionalism and the perennial past yeah and this be and okay so fine so this this comes from one of my axiomatic understandings of civilization and how it works yeah and that is that we've talked about it in previous podcasts we've talked about how i believe that there's a transcendent order of being that this is presupposed in the traditions of plato and aristotle if you want an incredible discussion in defense of this i would suggest you look no further than eric vogelin who i think we talked about in the men without chess podcast but the idea is that all of our civilization whether or not you agree with the tenets of those civilizations are based on these presuppositions that extend all the way back to plato and aristotle that prep that presupposition itself it's a transcendent natural order of being that extends beyond the the mere empirical yes. and to something spiritual and valuable. There's a non-negligible part of human life that is spiritual. And one of the things that bothers me about them is, first of all, this incredible arrogance with which they can uh, eschew tradition. So just because somebody is uh, old or far back in the past, they can be dismissed. Like, this is kind of yes. what's at the heart of pragmatism, is that knowledge is in the now. It's adaptable. It changes with circumstances. Yes. I don't know how much... Frere goes on that frequency, but that's basically what do that. That's basically how Dewey announces the the creation of knowledge and truth. Well, I think that he sees. So he definitely sees uh, the world or reality as a product of a dialectical process between the subjective experience of people and the the objective reality outside. Um, he talks about people trying to overcome their individual circumstances, though, like a lot of theory like this that talks about this overcoming. He doesn't discuss the the empirics of what's possible in the objective world, in part because he already has a theory, and which is basically revolutionary socialism, a sort of post-Leninist or, or Len, not. I want to say it's eschewing Leninism, but following after Lenin in some way, socialism that he thinks spells out where where you can end up uh, if you go through this liberatory process. So, so when we talk about this as subjective versus objective, uh, when, when we're constructing the world in this way, he is getting to these particulars that people believe in um, as opposed to just some sort of uh, generalized theory. But he's, he's not being super empirical about it. Well, there's this... Uh, whenever you look at... And you can't really afford to be empirical about it, especially whenever you look at it from like Dewey's point of view, who like Dewey's democratic liberalism Mm -hmm. is only capable of working if you already, it's the, it's the kind of ideology that only like a rootless urbanite from the middle or upper class of the Northeast in America during the early 20th century could buy into because you're divorced in large part. And I'm not saying Dewey didn't have like a very, a deeply meaningful personal life or spiritual life. I mean, yes. I mean, he talks about his own float into secularism and common faith in 1934. But what I am saying is that he's divorced from 
how, let's say, poor people, the working class, view spirituality, and how it's such a necessary part of dealing with human suffering that people who didn't grow up rich in Vermont do deal with. Yes. And that plays into part of the reason why he can so easily uh, disregard traditional notions and particularism yes. is because they're not doing a whole lot for him. And in fact, to him, there are obstacles in forming his weird new religious ideal. His neo-faith in democracy is like this Hegelian absolute ersatz god. Yeah. I think that one thing that happens, if we want to talk about the actual implementation of these ideas, like clearly they've had a huge impact on the educational establishment and the way education is conducted. We talked about how that's been reflected in our own lives. And you can see that with, with Frere's work being the one of the being the third most cited paper in the social sciences or or book in the social sciences um, based on a, a study that was done on Google Scholar. So clearly they've been hugely influential, but they have only had piecemeal implementation as far as their actual ideal state is concerned, right? Like the, like we said earlier, the, the, pra the practical limitation on their implementation are the metrics imposed from above. Yeah, well, and the which are their own terror. Yeah, and and that Frera has been decontextualized, and so this this thing has been used in a, in a context that is not revolutionary socialism. And but what happens when you you have that and you substitute something else out is that the metrics and the bureaucracy take the place of that, and it leaves you in a weird place because you have this you've now got this you know, highly neoliberal, instrumental to the shuffling people into categories in society and getting them into colleges and everything like that, testing system that then has this, this Deweyite or Frarian pedagogy or methodology, uh, in some cases, tacked onto it. Um, and these things kind of coexist in this really um, uh, unsteady, uh, unpeaceful fashion, right? Uh, where they're in, in kind of constant conflict with each other. And I think that's where we find ourselves, and then the question we have to ask is what would be the best alternative to that? Well, so on that, I do think, I think everybody knows the words that are about to come out of my mouth as I called myself an educational perennialist, uh, which I think is the best approach possible. The reason why I think that's the best approach is because I'm about to give the most uh, ungenerous interpretation possible of both Frere and Dewey, or at least I'm about to very ungenerously analyze the consequences of their thought. And that's that, so like, the reason Dewey develops these systems is because he believes traditional education, or what he calls vocational education, which is different mm -hmm. from like a perennialist, traditionalist education, is a product of a system that wants to produce better factory workers. Fair enough. And the idea is to create a little society of social reformers who are able to further and further push for more freedom and liberty and equality. What it ends up doing by eschewing tradition and by hollowing out the idea of natural law and by divorcing people from their own heritage and tradition and championing these, neo, these weird neo-faith concepts above traditional concepts with historical gravity is you end up just creating a population of social reformers who are uh, very morally and personally weak. Yeah. They're much more easily manipulated by a bureaucracy that you haven't gotten rid of, by yes. an industry which you definitely haven't gotten rid of, and you've in, you've in a way made them even more susceptible to the forces which you 
which you thought to liberate them from. They're easily manipulated in a consumer society. Well, and that's why you say you can decontextualize uh, Frera and say you've taken the revolution out of Frera, but you've kept all like these parts about progressive education. And that's what co-optation is. That's how neoliberalism works. works. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think this goes back to what we were saying pretty early on, where you just end up having people teaching themselves out of the milieu in which they exist. And I'm not saying that education never has to change, right? It definitely has to adapt itself to however you're producing things, and, and there are components of that. But if you're talking about the, the core education, you've got to give people something that is going to be a bulwark against all of the changes in the world in order to, uh, to have them be functional whole human beings. And I think that when you talk about perennialism, I think that there's an empiricism that, that, that we can use to look across different cultures and see that they all have these deep intellectual traditions. Uh, at least, the you know, uh, whenever cultures have had high enough uh, population densities and things to have these, these written uh, traditions. And you can see a number of them across the world. And so we know that this depth exists in these societies and we can find commonalities between these different societies, right? This goes back to Lewis's articulation of the Tao. Um, and when you find those commonalities, you know that you're finding something common in humanity. And so that's how you can empirically know, you know, this, this across space and time that this, these are things that you should be teaching, right? When you look in Proverbs or you look in these, these various classics, when all of these things that, that read like Aesop's fables or nod to the, the gods of the copybook headings is the, the Kipling poem. When we look at that, we can know empirically that there's something there that we need to teach. Uh, when we look at it in our particular society, our our tradition is, is this uh, Greco-Roman canon, and then if you're in the English-speaking world, uh, this canon of, of various works from uh, the Middle Ages through modernity in, in, the developing, in developing English uh, that, that are particular to the language. And studying all of those, I think, is very important. I, I went to, through a college program that that was the, the honors college that was a grounding in all of these works. And what was fascinating about that is that it gave me the direct personal experience of that what they call the Western canon. And it, far from making me a chauvinist for the West, made me appreciate the depth that you can tell exists in all of these other cultural traditions. Absolutely. Right? And there's an intellectual humility that comes out of that that I think is essential for an educated person. And what I'm trying to say here is, is, that, is that you can do this cross-sectional analysis where you look at all of these different traditions, like I just said, and it's very empirical, and you can tell that there are things that humans have had in common and you want to teach those things. And then you move to teaching them out of your particular tradition, and it allows you to appreciate what's common in humanity while also appreciating what is particular and unique about your own tradition. And then it allows you to see that you don't fully comprehend everything in your own tradition, much less managing to reach out and comprehend everything that's that's in the Chinese or the Indian or the Islamic or, or their African traditions as well that go back or, or the, the mostly lost traditions of, the, of the, the Aztecs or the Inca. But to comprehend that there's an entire intellectual life that exists in these uh, groups that is totally human and exists in ways that are also foreign to your mind and are very particular. And I think it, it gives it, it makes 
something like Leninist socialism uh, or, or uh, this dewy-eyed emphasis on this particular ideal democracy seem uh, very uh, provincial in the way they're presented as, as uh, if they're presented as universal uh, values to aspire to. Well, that's the grand irony of it, is that these are all, at least Freire and Dewey, they make, oh, uh, and other ideologues in the same. So a lot of modernism is about universalism, universalist human ideals. Mm -hmm. What I find so funny about any ideology which claims a new universalism is that we can only achieve it once we get rid of the one truly universal thing, which is our connection to all of humanity, yeah. which is history and writings. The, like the, the great idiosyncrasy, idiosyncrasy of mankind is our ability to transmit written knowledge through history. Yes. We know what some men said 2,000 years ago. That is not appreciated for the incredible fact that it is. That's your connection, and, not just to the humans today, but of humans throughout time. Even if you don't agree with everything that they said, this is, this is the universal connection between all humans. And what's so funny about all these new ideologies, these new, all new 20th century ideologies, is they come in and they sort of claim the, the new throne to universalism. We just have to get rid of the obstacle of uh, the rest of uh, the human canon. Yeah, uh, that, I think that's one of the interesting qualities of s certain forms of modernity. And it's interesting to see a form of modernity that, that is, uh, or a form of modern ideology in Dewey that's progressive and therefore perceived as left-wing, but not opposed to, like, not explicitly opposed to capitalism, for example. Right. Uh, and then also a strand of thought that is explicitly opposed to capitalism. Uh, in the Frarian ideology, and to see both the capitalist and anti-capitalist uh, modernity have this uh, universalizing uh, note to them and the way in which they have to discard so much of what makes us human in order to be universal. So it's, it's fascinating because prayer is all about humanization and, and, and opposing dehumanization. But in this universality, I see a strand of denying the things that we have held in the past to be our common humanity in favor of a new universal vision of humanity that's divorced from the common humanity people used to have, even as it erases the particularism. So like you're saying, it reaches in both directions. It's like, here's the new ideal, and so we need to, we are all human beings, and so we need to get rid of our old common humanity in favor of this new common humanity, and then while we're doing that, erase all of these uh, deep, appreciable differences between us. And I think this is very uh, a fatal process to humanization. I think that that you said we can understand what people wrote two thousand years ago, and that that's a, a you know a, a something different between humans and animals. And I think that's true, but I think it goes very far beyond that. We can feel and perceive what people were thinking, not just what they wrote, but what they thought and what they felt. 2000, 3000 years ago. I mean, I can ago. read something from Plato and I can genuinely, I can genuinely be like, oh my God, I've had that thought. That's incredible. It's yeah, really it's validating unreal. to know that like he, he wrote that. Yeah. Well, and you can peer back and see, see societies that, that you don't agree with that are incredibly different from your own and empathize with the people in them, right? You read the Iliad and it's difficult not to be moved, even though the, the, the drama is set, you know, starts with a dis, dis, uh, something that would be horrifying to us, basically a dispute over a captured slave girl and the dishonor that, that this person being taken away from the the protagonist um, uh, 
puts upon Achilles. The, uh, and, and even though we see that framing and it seems monstrous to us, right, morally evil, uh, and, and it is, I agree that it is, but you still get to see this in, within the context of the society, this journey that you can understand and empathize with as Achilles loses a friend, as the, the loss of his friend dehumanizes him and turns him basically into a killing machine, and then he's drawn back out of it uh, after he kills Hector by uh, the, the appeal to common humanity of Priam when he wants to have his, the body of his son back, mm. right? Just to give you, you this... <clears throat> very short description of the, the drama of this thing. And it's something you can instantly sympathize with. And even if you, you are repulsed somewhat by the fact that Achilles, you know, owns a slave, that kind of thing, you can understand why he would be angry about his, his uh, friend Patroclus being, being killed in battle. And, and, but even if you can't get there and you can't understand the wrath that he feels that causes him to kill Hector, you're going to end up being moved by Priam, begging for the body of his son back. And if you aren't moved by any of those things, I don't know what's been done to you. you know? Then you are, you you know, are the new man. Have you you, <laughs> I mean, I, if somebody's sitting there and listens to this and says, well, I didn't find any of that compelling, I, you know, I'm not saying this to insult you, but I'm saying this to, to tell you because you need to hear it. You've in some very serious way stepped outside of humanity and you need to figure out a way to get yourself back to it. But all of that to say that, that there's something fundamentally humanizing about studying this philosophy uh, in, in, in the tradition that you're in and being able to, to dip into other traditions because just studying our own tradition is the work of a lifetime even if you're a serious, dedicated scholar. Yeah. Um, so it, it, but that doesn't mean that you can't branch out from it or those things aren't completely unavailable to you. Learning your own culture is a good starting point for being able to understand the others or well, get a taste of them at least. One of the... So the, the guiding star for both Dewey and Frera, as they would put in their own terms, is education is a tool ultimately for saving people from oppression or exploitation. This yes. is what Dewey's fighting against. Remember, he's making a system. He says, we don't want to produce just a bunch of good factory workers. We want to produce produce actualized people who are actualized into, into participating in my awesome, weird, vague idea of an ethical ideal of democracy. Frero wants a system that produces people that overthrow the oppressors. That, that yes. uh, he, It is a pedagogy for the oppressed so that they may no longer be oppressed. The reason why I think perennial education is so important is because, first of all, the amount of esteem and confidence that comes with having a past, and you can hear it, uh, you can hear it in uh, discussions about uh, the truly most evil-like predations of slavery, on top of slavery itself, is the divorce of the descendants of slaves from their African past. Yeah. This is a point of much uh, distress and contention among the black community today. There is something very, very important about being yes. able to point at something and say, this is who I am, this is my past. I understand the power in that. Beyond that, mm -hmm. there's this idea that so you have like Dewey or Freire and they want to push against oppression, but they want you to do it in their new framework with mm -hmm. these ideas that really aren't that compelling. Like you just described all these different stories in the Iliad that uh, somebody could at one point or another identify with uh, all moral misgivings or whatever's changed in history aside. 
when you look at Dewey, as I was reading Dewey, one of the things that I just, one of the snags I kept running into, one of the, one of my big snags with liberalism in general, is that it's just not exciting. And that sounds like a really stupid criticism. You'd be like, oh, it's not exciting. Well, it's better than monarchy. Okay, what I mean by it's not exciting is that human beings need an animus. We need an impetus to follow an idea, to engage in this natural social bonding that makes us the social creatures we are. It has to, to participate in a society that functions. We need something to be interested in. And I think liberalism appeals uh, in, its, in its attempt to be as equitable as possible. It deliberately appeals to the broadest ideas it can. So universalist notions of humans, right? We're all a part of the human race. Yes. And in order to articulate that, it has to disregard all the particularisms that make people people. Yes. In essence, they articulate what, what you could say is, rationally speaking, a very moral idea. But it's a very uninteresting idea. And you're going to have a hard time getting people to do something as dramatic as die for it, which is very, very important. All these ideas in classical literature, like, again, you bring up the Iliad. These are stories of heroes, heroes killing and dying yeah. for important emotional dramatic ideas. There is some part of human existence that needs those things. And whenever we disregard them and say, don't worry, we'll all be the no man tomorrow, you haven't really made man. You've, you've kind of t taken your first step to post-man psychologically. I think that there's something interesting there in that, the, you know, in order to reach these moral ideals, you kind of have to buff uh, the rough edges off of people, right? You have to, but if you have a theory about human beings, uh, in order to have a theory that's abstract, a lot of times you have to, to. You're making statements about the, the general tendencies of human beings, and so you have to cut cut the extremities off, right? You have to ignore qualities in order to get to those abstractions. I think that this is another thing that that actually speaks to why perennialism. Uh, is useful in that a lot of times these perennial traditions will contain multiple different, and I know this is true in, in the Western tradition, multiple different perspectives on human life. Well, once again, the Robert Hutchinson curriculum, it has everything from Plato and Aeschylus to Das Kapital by Marx. It, it necessarily right. includes all yeah. these different corners of civilization. You know, one of, the, civilization. one of the best experiences that I've had, and, and this is what I, I think has to happen, is that in a system of education, you need to have multiple perspectives, and you need to have multiple well-formulated perspectives so that people can understand that there are multiple systems for analyzing something. You can't subordinate everything to a single system, or you can see which system most closely reflects you know, your own thought or your own experience, um, and which system most you think best fits the facts. But there's a lot of indeterminacy in human life. But one thing that does is the same thing that we were talking about earlier about introducing humility. I, I, if you know, if you see the vastness of one tradition and know there are entire other traditions out there, it creates some humility about your own uh, intellectual capabilities. And then you, uh, if you look at multiple works within your tradition that offer, you know, systems or have been well regarded and you see that they contradict each other, even though when you read them at first they're incredibly convincing, then it elicits some humility in terms of comprehending your own understanding. I recall, uh, you know, one of the best courses I've ever taken was just a, a primary source survey course at the university I was at where we read Locke and then Rousseau and then uh, we read Burke and Wollstonecraft 
uh, and moving up to um, well, the Communist Manifesto and, and some Freud and then uh, actually uh, L.T. Hobhouse, who is a modern liberal writing in about 1911, and that's really where the, the course stopped. But each of these are fully thought out perspectives of looking at politics and looking at the human condition. They're pretty well thought out and they're well regarded historically, even if some are not still believed. Um, and it's interesting to see that something that you read that could be completely convincing if read by itself, when you get a second perspective that would be equally convincing read by itself and they contradict each other, gives you some insight into how limited our comprehension of, of human reality is. And I want to say something really quick about, about reading somebody whose system of thought has been completely discarded or you know you don't believe because there are entire systems of thought that were incredibly well thought out and you can realize when you're reading them that they were well thought out uh, th but that have been discarded or superseded by other forms of knowledge and reading those is a, is a uh, and, and applying that on a meta level to your own understanding I think is, is a very important thing because you realize that whatever paradigm you're using to analyze could also be completely superseded. It forces you to think about what you think. I mean it's like John Dewey for all the criticisms I level against him the man knows what he thinks. He's not unsure about anything. I just disagree with his axioms. Right. But everything from his work in uh, instrumentalist or pragmatist philosophy to functional psychology to education, there are a few common threads running through it. It's a coherent system. It's well thought out. I just, uh, going through and reading it, I had to sit there because, you know, you're reading it. Yeah. And he is an obtuse writer, but, you know, you still bear through it. And occasionally you get to parts that you kind of agree with. And maybe, like, one of these natural parts of seeking knowledge is you start getting that little knot in your stomach where you're just like, maybe I've been unfair, maybe I'm wrong. And what you do is you keep reading, and you go and read criticism of them, because somebody else has probably said better what you, would, what you think you want to say. And then you actually have to sit there and you have to think, you have to analyze what you think. After reading Dewey, I realize, like, on an axiomatic level, I think whenever it comes to the source of morals and the manufacture of knowledge and truth, I just disagree with him in a way that isn't uh, easily mediated by debate. These are, like, these are very ontological yes. debates. But I'm glad I read it because it made me... Uh, it made me understand his system of thought better. It made me understand myself better, which is... And when you were talking about... Uh, going through different traditions. I think one of the most important things I did is I took an Eastern Civ class, uh, yes. and the doctor, I won't name him, I want to name him because he's an excellent professor, but we had to read the Analects of Confucius, and we had to read the Arthashastra, which is like mm -hmm. roughly, I would call it, like the Indian Machiavelli. And it was the first instance I have, like, I'm not sitting here being like, there's civilizations other than Western civilization, but it was the first time I had had to read philosophical works outside of my own civilization. Well, there's a huge difference between abstractly comprehending that those works exist and that those people exist and experiencing their, you know, even in translation, experiencing their minds directly. Well, yeah, I experience it. Uh, you know, I go through and I read the Analects, and then I read a commentary on how the Analects plays a part in... Chinese thought today, which is, you know, sort of their own perennial tradition. Yes. In other words, the oh, flow yes. of that. And it's a, it's a wonderful feeling because you feel like you gain this new understanding of a culture, which to you is nothing more than maybe a couple of like, I don't know, a couple of like dime show images in uh, video games and, right. and other sort of media. But uh, so it's like I sit here and I say, because we live in Western civilization, I'm for a perennial tradition that emphasizes the works of Western civilization. But it's like reading the Arthashastra and uh, 
the Analects of Confucius, or Confucius were some of the most uh, incredible things that I ever read. Yes. And that's, I think, learning those things is ultimately what makes people well-educated citizens. Because all the things that Frere and Dewey are going for, where they want to create students who are social reformers or activists, yes. you can't teach that in a classroom you should be laying foundations in a classroom. You should be introducing students to new things. But like the the social engineering itself that they want to take place in the classroom, I think is the real crime of both of their philosophies. I think the, the crime of both of their philosophies is, is certitude, is an over-certitude, is a belief that they have a system that fully understands reality or fully understands all the salient components of reality. Freire explicitly says that technological uh, and, and technical training is incomplete as an education because it doesn't comprehend the, the totality of the social situation in the, the socio-historical context. Oh, wait, could you, sorry, could you quote that back to me again? So Frere, and I'm not, I'm not quoting him precisely here, but Frere says that the, uh, yeah, that technical education doesn't manage to comprehend society and doesn't lead to liberation because it doesn't comprehend uh, the totality of the social situation in its historical context. Is that why they started making feminist welding classes? Uh, yes, this is okay, the sort of thing. Checks. Yeah, so, so one of the, one of, I wasn't going to say it, but one of the outgrowths of, the, of this theory as far as it, he, he basically says that every, every sort of uh, technological... Um, every sort of technological uh, discipline is going to have to be subordinated to this, uh, like once the revolution comes, more or less, to this, this cultural revolution. It's very totalitarian, uh, this cultural revolution that'll touch on every aspect of human life. Oh, I love Lysenkoism. Uh, yeah, so what, what he specifically says is cultural revolution is a necessary, I'm quoting him here, cultural revolution is a necessary continuation of the dialogical cultural action which must be carried out before the revolution reaches power. Cultural revolution takes the total society to be reconstructed, including all human activities, as the object of its remolding action. And you can see how that's very directly totalitarian, and you can see how that would, would proceed from believing that your system has a comprehension of the system as a whole and can remake the whole thing. But his criticism of uh, one thing he says after that is that this is going to this sort of education that he's proposing is going to have to to bear down and have some control. I mean, because technical education is a human activity, so clearly it's going to have a bearing on it in order to subordinate it to the goals of the revolution. Um, but he he says that the pro one of the problems with technical education is that it doesn't understand the totality of society in these and and it's uh, context in in history and, and in the movement of history and the what that implies is that his system and his analysis does which is not true you do not comprehend the totality of uh, you know the the or even all the salient points of the uh, system and of society at its current point in time no one ever has and uh, if you have some sort of ideology, like much of Marxist ideology that offers some sort of totalizing vision of society in that sense, if you believe that that really represents society or captures all of the salient components of society, you're deluding yourself. 
there's a uh, there's a connection I want to draw here. It's probably one of the more spicy things that'll get it because this is this is uh, talking about Freira and Dewey are really uh, gateway drugs to spice your political conversations about the modern day, which we'll probably get into uh, further down the road and like in other episodes. One of these schemas that I have in my head, uh, its accuracy, I would say, is generally proved historically. And I'm in good company. I'm in agreement with people like James Lindsay. I have my own issues with James Lindsay, but I think James Lindsay does a very good job describing of some of the inherent problems in left-leaning liberalism. And how, so you have Dewey, who represents this this liberal progressivism, which I, I styled as sort of closer to the center in this left-right spectrum. And you have Frere over here, who's on the far left, because he's unironically uh, going on about revolution. And this schema that I have is that so, uh, Dewey, uh, Deweyism, like Dewey, Dewey's notions of a perfected democracy and all his philosophical ideals about how morality is just, uh, morality grows out of social practicality and stuff like that. That's not a stable structure. Yes. And it's a structure that can't help but first fall into moral relativism and nihilism, which isn't me, that's Plato. And then it slides over here to Freyra. I think, like, uh, Dewey liberalist thinking really is sort of the gateway drug to getting to like Frere leftism where you eventually get people talking about revolution and pedagogy of the oppressed. You get uh, people eventually talking about uh, sort of intersectional radical justice with revolution as the primary vehicle for doing so. And if you want real world examples of this happening, I think the best one is probably Evergreen State. And this is why I'm saying this is so spicy, if either yeah. of you are familiar with Evergreen State. Because Evergreen State was uh, an experimental uh, education college. I say was. Because, I mean, it's still going, but I think it's uh, its corpse is sort of being dragged now. They've lost so much money, and I think uh, quite a bit of the administration has been cycled. Have, by the way, how familiar are you with the events at Evergreen? I'm pretty familiar. I've watched a number of videos about it. and kind of saw it happen in real time because I followed the libertarian news. Well, so here's the thing is I'm uh, I, I'm reticent to comment on this just because I'm not sure of the exact programs of education that yeah. they ran at Evergreen. I knew it's experimental. I know the website says it's experimental. And I've listened to Brett Weinstein say they engaged in sort of these interesting experimental forms of education. And the college was sort of predicated on this idea. Of, I don't know if you like maybe it is Deweyite. I've never heard anybody use that word. Yeah. But it did seem to believe to have this ethos that traditional education is a bad vehicle for learning. Yeah. And what eventually happened is you got one and, and this is the problem of liberalism is liberalism works really good as long as every single actor is engaging in good faith. Well, then you get one professor there who's engaging in very bad faith. And soon you can turn liberalism and it's a very permissive attitudes towards standards or a lack thereof against itself. And then all of a sudden you have the student body having sort of a of a of a, a frere revolution and uh, overthrowing the administration and bullying the president and telling him he can't go to the bathroom and it well, just it just seems like a microcosm for what we're talking about of the frere of the Dewey Frere pipeline. What I would say about Evergreen State is well for one thing the the president even though they lectured him in that way and controlled him in that way really seemed to be on bored with the entire project that most of those students were Well, and I would, I would saw, I've seen other interviews with him. He seems explicitly Dewey. I, I mean, he's... Yeah, but I mean, he's also explicitly he's in favor of the, the social justice stuff that happened there. And um, 
what I would say about that is it's a situation where a university that was that was kind of founded on these uh, these principles of uh, or or was adhering to these principles of, of free inquiry and, and different things like that and the self-actualized learning uh, got taken over by an ideology that was extremely certain of itself, that put itself outside of the system of questioning, right? And I think this goes back to the, the things we were saying earlier about Dewey wanting to get to a certain point and Frero wanting to get to a certain point and this being in conflict with the idea of, of individuals uh, engaging in the self-exploration is an ideology like those that Dewey and Frere have, uh, maybe not exactly their ideology, but a related ideology, uh, became, got powerful enough on that campus and became certain enough of itself that it was willing to suppress dissent against that ideology. And the way in which it phrased that was in, in a certain language of, of safety and diversity for the people there, uh, but uh, the specific manifestation is to is to really just take a, a point where you reach a level of certainty that if you were educated in the way that we were just talking about, you wouldn't be able to achieve because you wouldn't you wouldn't trust yourself so much that you would be willing to reach out and suppress other people in the way that uh, that the students there did. Well, certainty. Uh, certainty wins over uncertainty. This is kind of this is kind of yeah. uh, this kind of calls back to the very first podcast, where we noticed that people who do assert will will assert their will inevitably over the men without chests who are doing no assertion, and they'll yeah. just sort of like go with the flow. Yeah, I think that where that brings us is that we need a system of education that causes people to stand up for these real ideals of humanity and of cultivation of, of the self and uh, cultivation of the intellect, but doesn't presume to comprehend the full ambit of, of human society and human societies and doesn't try to eliminate those things that are particular and different from it when it, uh, it shouldn't. And that uh, can be robust and defend itself against totalizing ideology. Uh, I think for me, I guess to make my concluding remarks, uh, reject modernity, return to monkey, or failing that, return to educational perennialism. I don't view that as an absolute cure-all. I mean, we just spent a bunch of time here talking about how I think uh, understanding the canon of your own culture and your own civilization, in my case, Western civilization, and especially for me, Plato and Aristotle, is absolutely vital to you having a centered moral compass and being able to engage with a system that at some point may try to oppress you. I think it's much better than buying into these new ideologies which sort of like dehistoricize humanity and say that humanity ideologically only exists in the now and that it's past and its institutions, which which flow, which emanate from that past, like the church and the family, are obstacles to be rid of, so that you can engage in this idea. Reject that. Culture Camp is hosted by Sean and Gavin. It's recorded, produced, and edited by Tom. Our opening track is The Mountains Don't Care About You by Dr. Turtle, and our closing track is Freeze Frame 
by Stalers. You can contact us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Spotify and share this episode on social media. And thanks for listening.